0: This is Shine On, the health and happiness show, with new episodes every week on how to live well. Shine On is heard all over the world as a podcast, but it's heard first on the radio in New York's Hudson Valley. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shine On. Today, we are gonna try to find a path to love by looking at prejudice and hate. Prejudice and hate is the topic today. There's a new book out called The Science of Hate. Matthew Williams wrote how prejudice becomes hate and what we can do to stop it. One of the things he talks about is how children, via the internet and social media, are exposed so much hate at such an early age, and it changes people. That changes people, the bullying online, the bullying for all sorts of things, starting in middle school even sooner. You know, these little hearts and minds subjected to so much hate and criticism at a time when their little spirits are probably not strong enough to handle it all. So what are we going to do about this? How are we going to find a way to put more love into the world. I believe that it starts with language. And maybe if that works for you, you can use that in your household too, with your children, with your grandchildren, with the people in the community. If we start with language and elevating our language to show respect to all people, we may find a path that helps us learn love. Matthew Williams says, hatred is a social construct, but prejudiced, that's part of how our brain works. Our brain is always scanning, scanning, scanning the universe to say, is this good? Is this bad? Will this hurt me? Am I safe? That's part of our reptilian brain, the amygdala which we've talked about so much on this show, and we'll talk about a little bit more coming up. And I can share this so wholeheartedly because I've seen it up close with people I know and love. When I'm not loving life, speaking into a microphone on the airwaves... I run a foundation called Let It Shine, and we have a food pantry that serves 100 families a week. I have seen up close and in technicolor the prejudice in myself and in people I love working in this food pantry. I have a saying at the food pantry, it's first I'm going to do it wrong. Because, you know, I've never done this before. So many things to do every day, all of them different, always learning. So first I'm going to do it wrong. and I can say." I absolutely did the food pantry wrong in the beginning by not being generous enough, by thinking that our shoppers needed the volunteer police to make sure everything was fair. That was my own prejudice speaking. And every day in the food pantry, you bump up against your own prejudice and the best volunteers learn and grow from it and we have the most intense and wonderful and deep conversations about it like feelings that come up feelings that were learned let me give you a few examples about the prejudice that i see firsthand from people i love number one question people ask me when they talk about the food pantry hey case how's it going at the food pantry oh yeah going really good serving a lot of people how do you know they'll say to me how do you know that everybody that comes there really needs the food maybe that rang a bell with you maybe that was you bumping up your own inner prejudice because there's a part of you that thinks maybe people who have less are untrustworthy or maybe people who have less are trying to rip somebody off really where did that thought come from it could not be farther from the truth in the food pantry that could be something personal bubbling up in you. Mm -hmm. And now we look at it this way. I believe every time Macy's department store opens their doors, they know that, you know, somebody's going to steal something, pocket something, right? It's the price of doing business. Every time we open our pantry doors, is there a possibility that somebody doesn't need to be there and they'll take An extra can of beans? I guess it's possible. But it's the price of doing business. I have to look past that perhaps one potential person so I can get to the other 99 who really need and appreciate the help. Now, it never crosses my mind, does this person need it? The only thing that crosses my mind is, am I serving this person before me with love and dignity? And I said, I believe it starts with language, because early on in the pantry history, I had to change the language. I banned the words, they and them. Every time someone speaks of our shoppers, they must use the words our shoppers. And when I write it in email or on our Facebook group, I capitalize the S for shoppers because the language elevates the situation. The language reminds everyone we are here to serve our shoppers. And once you say they or them, you've created a great divide where it's us over here and them over there and we are the us, we are the givers, and they, they are the receivers. That seesaw is way out of balance. It is way out of balance. We the givers, it's our privilege and honor to give somebody else paid for this food. It already belongs to our shoppers. We just get to be there to help them take it away. We get the joy of being part of the process of giving by our shoppers coming in to take what's already theirs. Our witnessing that elevates our day because there's something in us that knows this is how the world should work. And there's something in us that knows helping each other and being kind feels so darn good. And when I say this is how the world should work, I mean helping each other and being kind. That is how the world should work. Another thing that people say to me, people I love, people I care for, people who are my very good friends, they say things like, oh, I saw that turkey giveaway. Boy, those people online sure look greedy. Really? They look greedy to you? By the way, I stopped doing turkey giveaways because it's just not a dignified way to do things. Now the turkey's just on the shelf with everything else. We don't make a big deal out of it. In the early days, we made a big deal about everything. We over-celebrated everything. That's not dignified. And during one of these turkey giveaways, people did jockey into position to get first in line. And people I love saw that as being greedy. My response to that is you don't know how you would act if you had kids and grandkids at home that were hungry. So you see greedy, I see a mom and dad or a grandma and a grandpa doing everything they can to take care of their family during tough times. I don't see greedy, I see grandma. And you know your grandma would do anything for you. But if you see greedy, that's something bubbling up in you. That's my belief. Another way prejudice pops up at the food pantry, volunteers who think they need to over-explain everything to our shoppers and post recipes up for our shoppers because they think our shoppers don't understand how to cook this, that, or the other thing. They are grown people. They have been in a grocery store before. They can figure out how to cook this particular item. They don't need your help. Now, if you have a great recipe and you just want to share it from the love in your heart, share it that way. But don't share it from a place that you know better. You don't know these people. You don't know what you're talking about. Your only job is to witness the miracle. Strangers, donators, paid for this food, people who need it are going to come in and get it. You get to hold their bags and hold the door for them. You get to be part of the miracle. You get to go home feeling good because you are just around some really high energy. It's called love. It's called love. I know. I'm on my soapbox. But this is something I've seen up close, and it's made me change my language about everything. So that's my contribution to the conversation today. If you feel yourself putting any group of people down using they or them, elevate the language. Remember, these are human souls with moms and dads. They're somebody's brother or sister. Somebody loves them and they are worthy of love. And I just have one more example from the food pantry. People I love, people I'm related to have expressed that the food pantry has brought the wrong element to town. What do you mean the wrong element? Hungry people are already in town. They're right here. They live by you. They can't make ends meet. You can make believe they're not there. But hungry people are in your town, maybe on your street. Whatever element you're talking about, that's just you bumping into your own prejudice. And the reason prejudice is so bad and we have to find it within ourselves and root it out is because prejudice turns into hate. And hate is like Velcro. Stuff sticks to it. And that's where we meet Matthew Williams, who wrote The Science of Hate. Matthew, of all the things I read about your book, this one struck me the hardest. It's from Professor Joe Margulies at Cornell. He said, for years, I have puzzled over the peculiar seductiveness of hatred and have wished there were a single clear volume that helped me understand it better. Now there is the peculiar seductiveness of hatred. That line hit me hard.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it was, it was a, a quote that I received out of the blue. And the way he expressed uh, the nature of hatred kind of chimed with, with, with what my scientific study of hatred over the last 20 years um, has basically unearthed. There is a seductiveness to it. There is, there is something sticky about hatred, to use a strange Uh, way to describe it that that means that we're drawn to it in some way. Uh, There's something that we've developed through evolution there's something that our brains uh, do when, when faced with threat that means that hatred is, has this seductive quality to it, yes.
0: Is there any hope for us? It, is, is your book, The Science of Hate, does it can it help us be better?
1: Oh yes, and, and that was the main point the, of writing the book, is that it, 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 the book comes from my own personal experience of a hate crime. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was attacked for being a gay man um, in London, and that changed my whole life, and, and I see you know, becoming a victim of hate crime is a very negative thing. How else can you perceive being victimized in that way, as apart from being negative? But I turned it on its head, and, and I changed my life's direction because of it. And instead of becoming a journalist, I really wanted to be a radio journalist, believe it or not, um, I instead embarked on a different career and studied criminology to try and find the answers as to why I was targeted that day. Why did they pick me? What was it about me that that meant that, that they drew to me and wanted to harm me physically? And then I spent the last 20 years trying to understand the science behind hatred and then to educate my students, but now the public. I have, I have written this book for that very reason. Trying to distill in the most accessible, crystal clear, level headed way I can um, the science behind hate so people can understand it, uh, understand how it might have an impact upon them. And I try to, to educate people about how we all have prejudices how I myself have prejudices I didn't realize I had before writing the book, um, and how we can work on those and prevent them from developing into something like hatred, but also how to challenge hatred that we see in others. So for example, if we do see some hate speech on social media, or we see someone in the middle of the street shouting something racist or homophobic to a, a fellow citizen, then we can do something about it as opposed to just walking on by or scrolling on by on social media. So I am very hopeful that the, the whole, my whole endeavor, the whole purpose of the book, the whole purpose of my career is to try and stop this and, and to do my little part uh, um, from, from my lab to try and figure out how we integrate the science into practical ways of reducing hatred out there in society.
0: Well, let's go to page 85 and jump right into our brains. We've got the amygdala and some other parts of the brain I didn't know we had. Tell me what's happening in our brain when we start to hate.
1: Ah, the brain. It's a a complex part of our biology. Um, So, yeah, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I spoke to a lot of neuroscientists while writing this book. Most of them American, actually, from the University of New York. Um, Jay Van Babel uh, is one of them. He's an amazing psychologist and uh, himself has, has written so much on prejudice and hatred. And the neuroscientists scientific study of, of hatred is fascinating because, of course, behavior starts within the brain in many ways. Our brain con- completely controls and regulates our, our our bodies, our minds, our behaviors. Um, so where else do you start? It's a great place to start. But what's really interesting about the brain is that there is no one part that that is responsible for, for generating or processing what we understand as hatred. Hatred really is a, a social construct for a start. So trying to map that onto a part of the brain is maybe a fool's errand to some extent but that doesn't mean we haven't tried um but what we have done in some studies um is locate areas of the brain that tend to activate under certain circumstances so for example the early neuroscientific studies um put white people into brain scanners and then flashed black and white faces at them very, very quickly on a screen. Uh, and the aim here was to identify if the brain processed a black versus a white face differently, if different parts of the brain lit up under, under the scanner's uh, BDI. Um, and what they found was that, that folks that um, had scored quite highly on a test called the implicit association test, which is a an indirect measure of racial prejudice, um, their amygdalas lit up like a Christmas tree uh, when they saw a black face instead of a, a white face. And that, that startled the researchers. It's the first bit of evidence ever to come out of a, of a scientific study like this that indicated that people's brains might react differently to different, different color faces. Wow. Um, what does it say? The amygdala, the amygdala, the part of the brain that lit up, was is responsible for fear processing it's the fight or flight response center of the brain so basically what they think it was showing back in the day which was back in the 90s these these experiments were being run was that the brain was identifying a source of threat of some kind
0: it makes my heart hurt this news although yeah. although it's not surprising it makes my heart hurt because while hatred is a social construct prejudice is part of is part of what our brain needs to do in terms of, like, discernment, right? That's part of our brain is always discerning. Is this good yeah. for me? Is this bad for me? But I'm thinking when your amygdala lights up, when it se- sees a black face, that's been taught.
1: Absolutely. There's no, it has been taught, absolutely. What we're seeing there is culture influencing Um, the way a brain reacts. And I think that's a really important point to make. None of us are born with an amygdala that does that. um, An amygdala that does that has learned it through culture and society. And a really interesting study done a decade later, um, another neuroimaging study, put black people into the scanner. Um, and some of those individuals had a similar response to other black faces. So all of a sudden we're seeing a similar kind of response uh, in, 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 in the black subjects. So what that tells us is that it has to be learned. That's not something that's preconditioned. That's how culture has had its way with the brains of certain individuals in society. So the amygdala learns of what it's fed uh, and... The amygdala in itself is it's is a great thing it's it's the it's the part of the brain that's kept us alive and it's the part of our brain that has, has made us triumph over other species um in over the last you know millions and millions of years and why we're another dominant species on the planet we are super threat detecting machines because of our amygdala but now in modern society when we're not surrounded by saber-toothed cats and, and uh, uh, freak weather events and, uh, that, that would completely wipe out, uh, you know, whole, whole societies, um, the amygdala is kind of left wondering what to do with itself. So it's kind of ultimately being, it's firing off and, and, and being influenced by things that aren't threats, really. It can be deprogrammed. Uh, and that's the interesting point about the genesis of it, where it comes from, we learn it. So we can also unlearn it and we can can change how the amygdala reacts over time, which is a really important point to make, I think.
0: Right. The amygdala makes us a super threat detecting machine. I like that. And uh, I remember a study from years and years and years ago with little black girls who would choose white dolls because they said they were prettier when given tests like this. And again, it's something that's learned. So where do we start unlearning with the science? of
1: hate? It's a really good point. The Unlearning is a huge gargantuan task. Um, when we're in the lab and we attempt to unlearn or, or at least introduce initiatives that, that try to deprogram uh, people's brains uh, to, to be technical, we find ultimately that in the lab the prejudices can wane, they can, they can be softened. But once they're put back into culture, the culture that introduced those prejudices in the first place, they can relearn old bad habits. So we know that the process of unlearning or deprogramming works, but the question is how do you port that from the lab, which is a very closed environment, to a a wider massive societal initiative? So what we need to see is an eradication, in essence, of the systemic biases in society. And that's no easy thing to do. And unfortunately, you know, it it takes a long time for that to happen. But one of the positive things I, I, I write about in the book is how, over time, we've seen what we call the civilizing process occur across different characteristics and different groups. So, for example, we had the Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Liberation Movement, the Gay Rights Movement. We're currently in the throes of the Trans Rights Movement, I would argue. And through each of these movements, society has shifted for the better. And we have recognized the rights of these groups in society, and it's become socially unacceptable to use certain forms of language to describe certain groups and to behave in certain ways towards these groups. So we are edging ever ever so slowly to that more civilized society. Society, I would argue. And as we do that, the brain learns from new information in each decade. So I've got nieces and nephews of, 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 between the ages of four and 10, and they're growing up in a in a period of time that's very different from when I grew up in the 80s. I have very positive feelings about what they will be like as adults. That said, there are things that may trip us up along the way that we can get into if you like. <laughs>
0: I'd love to get into those things.
1: Well, one of the major things is, I think, social media and the way in which social media has accelerated hatred in ways that we've not seen before. Ultimately, it's hard to say whether or not there's more hatred now than ever before. I can say with some degree of confidence that it's more insidious now than ever before because of the availability of the uh, of the internet and social media and the ways in which hate speech can literally permeate the sanctity of the home that used to be a safe haven. So, you know, if you think about bullying and kids and, and a hatred that is associated with that type of bullying, then there's no escape from it. So I think that social media, unregulated social media as it currently is, could prevent us from going down that mobilising process as quickly as we'd like. And I think we really need to solve that problem sooner rather than later to see significant progress.
0: Understood. Matthew Williams, our guest, The Science of Hate. I have one more question for you, and that is a very personal one. What was it in you, in your makeup, or in what you were taught that made you, when you were attacked for being a gay man, that made you want to study this, that made you want to get better instead of getting bitter? What was it in you that made made that path a choice
1: I think it was a natural curiosity just a passion for knowing and and learning I think that I was so I was so consumed by what had happened to me that the only way to to get out of that the only way to move beyond it was to understand it scientifically and that's just the way my head works you know that for me was my path to enlightenment and my path to healing in many ways and um Yeah, I think it it worked. I think it worked.
0: Beautiful. Where can we go for more information about you and your work?
1: Sure, thescienceofhate.com. Folks can go there and find out more about the book, more interviews, and also uh, where to purchase it uh, from local retailers.
0: That's Matthew Williams. He wrote The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate, and What We Can Do to Stop It. Maybe a good one for your book club. Maybe a good one for your community conversations great big beautiful book i'm happy to talk to matthew williams today i'm happy to share a little news let it shine is turning three we're having a party on march 12th you're welcome to join us get details at let it and i'm happy to report that spring is near and a hop skip and a jump away from spring is mother's day and we're going to have a let it shine pop-up market on mother's day Outdoors, on the river, get details at LetItShineOnline.com. And I'm happy to report we had a wonderful weekend retreat at Merriandale in Ossining in February. And we're going to have another one in July at Graymoor in Garrison and in August back at Merriandale. Get details at Casey'sPlace.com. If you're coming to the Westchester Women's Summit on March 10th, I will see you there. I'm the first speaker of the day. I'll be offering advice on how to make public speaking a little easier. Casey'sPlace.com And speaking of public speaking. And speaking of public speaking, our thought for the day comes from Dale Carnegie who said, the world owes its progress to the men, and I do believe he meant, and women too, who have dared. And you must dare to speak the effective word that is in your heart to speak, for often it requires courage to utter a single sentence. Word. Shine on. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show, with new episodes every week. It's your time to shine on.